From Public Radio International, this is The World. A co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston. It's Thursday, March 29th. I'm Marco Werman. Syria tops the agenda at the Arab League summit in Baghdad. We'll hear the details. And later, spreading the word on Pakistani mangoes. He said, oh, these are very good mangoes. I I didn't know how to eat it. I I didn't really even know what it was. And he was like, roll it around. I'm like, okay. And he says, okay, now eat it. Plus, why American women are playing pro basketball in Russia. I'm getting paid all the time. I don't have to hear excuses. That's one of the reasons why we come here. If I'm not going to get paid, I can stay in America, you know. PRI's The World is made possible in part by Medtronic, searching for runners who benefit from medical technology to run in the Medtronic Twin Cities Marathon. Application and information available at Medtronic.com slash Global Heroes. And by WGBH, producer of Nova with Hunting the Elements. David Pogue, technology correspondent of the New York Times, guides viewers through the world of weird extreme chemistry. Wednesday, April 4th at 9, 8 central on PBS. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. Arab League leaders gathered in Baghdad today. Well, at least some of them did. Only 10 of the league's 22 heads of state turned up for the summit. Not exactly a vote of confidence in Iraq as it hosts its first Arab League summit since Saddam Hussein's time. Reporter Jane Araf is in Baghdad and has been following today's events. Uh, The main subject as the summit got underway, Jane, was inevitably Iraq's neighbor Syria. What was discussed today? Essentially what they did at the end of the summit, and a summit really is probably a little bit more for show than substance, but they came up with something called the Baghdad Declaration, and part of that was an endorsement of the peace plan for Syria proposed by the special envoy for Syria from the UN, Kofi Annan. They called on Syria to implement the plan, and the Arab League Secretary General pointed out that included UN monitors. So essentially they're kicking the ball into Syria's court, and also passing it a little bit to the U.N. But again, it was really a parlor game of who was going to come, who was going to stay away, who was going to promise to come and not come, and who was going to finally sit in those seats, those 21 seats around that big table in this beautiful renovated palace. Well, why the low turnout, Jane? I mean, Jordan, Morocco, all the Gulf states except Kuwait stayed away. What's going on? You know, the Iraqis would say, and other diplomats say as well, that it actually isn't that low. Normally, Arab League summits get eight to 12 members, heads of state. They got nine. Okay, one of them was the Sudanese president, who has been wanted for war crimes in international courts. But still, they got nine. And significantly, they got the Kuwaiti emir, who came and embraced Prime Minister Nouri al-Maliki after 20 years of bitterness between the two countries. Now, the reason they didn't get more is because there's a lot of bitterness still in the Gulf over things going on currently in Iraq. That includes the Shia prime minister and what they see as the marginalization of Sunnis. So this summit was, as you say, somewhat put on for for show. Still, with regards to Syria, uh, the ball is now in Syria's court, uh, as you pointed out, with the Arab League saying you've got to comply with Kofi Annan's peace plan. So what's been the response from Syrian leader Bashar al-Assad to that? 
Well, he has said he accepted the plan. He has accepted the plan, but he said before that he's accepted various other plans and hasn't actually implemented them. So really, there's quite a lot of skepticism here still about whether he will do that. The problem is, if he doesn't implement them, what do you do next? Countries like Iraq, particularly Iraq being Syria's neighbor and having ties, is terrified at the thought of foreign intervention, the thought being that that could actually send the country spiraling towards civil war. And it wouldn't just be civil war in Syria, as tragic as it's already been there. It would engulf the entire region. And also, Iran, of course, is a concern. Iran is a close ally to Syria. So this brings it out of the arena of usual problems in the Arab region into a potential absolute catastrophe. Reporter Jane Araf in Baghdad at the Arab League Summit. Thanks as always, Jane. Thank you, Marco. Arab League member Saudi Arabia is in the news, and it has nothing to do with the summit in Baghdad. As a major oil exporter, Saudi Arabia's actions affect the price of gas at the pump. And in case you hadn't noticed, a gallon of unleaded is pretty expensive these days. Well, this week, the Saudi oil minister wrote in the Financial Times that Saudi Arabia will act to lower those prices. Hampshire College professor Michael Clare is the author of The Race for What's Left, The Global Scramble for the World's Last Resources. He says there are many factors that contribute to high oil prices right now. You know, it's a supply and demand situation always. And what we have is a lot of demand coming from the older industrial countries like the U.S., but also surging demand in China, India, and elsewhere. And the supply just can't keep pace. And I think that's going to be the situation for the indefinite future. But on top of that, right now, there's a lot of anxiety about the potential for a conflict in the Middle East, specifically an attack on Iran by either the United States or Israel or both leading to Iranian retaliation by cutting off the Strait of Hormoz, through which something like one-third of the world's tradable oil passes every day. If that were to happen, the price of oil would double or triple. So a lot of speculators are buying up oil now, thinking that the price will rise even further. So that adds to the upward mobility of oil prices. Well, let's talk about Iran. I mean, even without a blockade of the Strait of Hormuz, uh, the economic sanctions for Iran's nuclear program, it's said, could eventually leave half of Iran's oil output cut off from international markets. Is there an unintended consequence here? Trying to stop nukes ends up leading to higher oil prices at U.S. gas pumps? There's certainly no question that that's the case. Probably Iran's oil will find markets, but it'll be traded in the dark. But that will lead to higher prices as well because it'll be traded in in a black market. Now, when we read that Saudi Arabia can just act to bring down oil prices, it sounds like there's a, a big question of will around the pricing. What are the things we don't know that are going on behind the scenes about how oil prices are manipulated? I think there's a certain amount of hype here about what Saudi Arabia could do, actually. There was a time when Saudi Arabia had a lot of what's called spare capacity because they weren't producing all that they're capable of producing so that they could 
increase their output, flood the market, and that would bring prices down. Or alternatively, they could shut down some of their production and that would boost prices. But in fact, most countries now, with prices as high as they are, including Saudi Arabia, are producing as much as they can to benefit from high prices. So the notion that Saudi Arabia will act to bring down prices, I don't really think that's going to happen. Is there an argument, Michael Clare, to be made that as oil gets more expensive, the more incentives there will be to get more efficient and find alternatives? I think that's going to be the case down the road. What I think we are seeing in this country, and I think it's a hopeful development, is that people are buying more fuel-efficient vehicles. I don't think we're seeing so much investment in in new sources of energy. I wish there were. But people are voting when they go to the auto dealership. They're not buying gas guzzlers the way they once were. And that is reducing our demand for oil. And I think that pattern will gain momentum in the years ahead. Michael Clare, author of The Race for What's Left, The Global Scramble for the World's Last Resources. Thank you very much. My pleasure. Another story now about international relations and trade. This one's about Pakistani mangoes. Last summer, the American market opened for the first time to mangoes from Pakistan. The trade deal followed years of negotiations by government agencies in both countries. And top diplomats hoped the economic deal would do more than just introduce Pakistani mangoes to American consumers. They hoped it would help repair fraying relations between the U.S. and Pakistan. But as Odette Youssef reports... The first season of mango imports fell far short of expectations. The first time Gwen Williams ever tried a mango was six years ago. Her husband, Tahir Sandhu, bought them at a grocery store in Bloomington Normal, Illinois, where they were living at the time. Mangoes. I I didn't know how to eat it. I, I didn't really even know what it was. They were really soft and ripe. And he was like, roll it around. I'm like, okay. So she's rolling this mango between her two hands. And he says, okay, now eat it. And I'm like... Well, it's not even sliced open. And he said, this is how mothers used to feed mangoes to their children in Pakistan. He says, you'll stay busy for quite a while. Tahir grew up in Pakistan, so he showed Gwen how to eat it. He cut a tiny slit at the top of the mango. And then at that point, it felt like holding like a really thick milkshake. And so you just slurp it out of the little... Slit. It was wonderful. (laughs) In Pakistan, mangoes are called the king of fruit. Pakistani mangoes are less fibrous and much sweeter than the Mexican mangoes that you can buy here in the U.S. I met Gwen and Tahir in Lahore, Pakistan this past winter. They were there to start a new chapter in their lives. They want to start importing Pakistani mangoes to the U.S. Tahir says they got the idea from Hillary Clinton. Mrs. Clinton was in the media telling everybody that we are going to get Pakistani mango here. That was in the summer of 2010 when Secretary of State Clinton was visiting Islamabad. At that point, you couldn't buy Pakistani mangoes in the U.S. USDA rules made it difficult to bring in Pakistani fruit. But once top officials in both countries started pushing for a mango trade deal, things began to move. Gwen read about it in the newspaper. Here's how Tahir remembers it. She read that, and she said, look at this, what is going on? I said, yeah, Pakistani mango is the best mango, so what? It should be here, you know, why not? So Gwen and Tahir quit their jobs as research librarians to get into the mango trade. Shah Mahmood Qureshi was Pakistan's foreign minister at the time that Clinton endorsed the trade. He says the mango deal isn't just about moving fruit, it's about moving perceptions. Mango diplomacy could have led to 
a better understanding uh, between the two people. That's right. Mango diplomacy. The idea is to help both countries see that their ties can go beyond just fighting terrorism together. They can promote each other's economic interests through trade. Wins all around, right? Not to businessman Abid Butt in New York. The total cost of this venture was exceeded $70,000 to me. But was the first to import Pakistani mangoes for sale once the trade deal was finalized last summer. I am still under debt paying my bills. But imported almost three tons of mangoes. He says it was a red tape nightmare from the start. First, it was hard to persuade Pakistani mango growers to sell to him. When Butt finally got one orchard to supply him, it charged him triple what it charges the local market. Then there was the high cost of flying the fruit to Chicago and then ground shipment to New York. The first day of arrival, we sold about six boxes for $100 a box in order to cover whatever we could cover. One box holds about six mangoes. So that was about $16 per mango. And then we reduced to 70 then to 50 then to last day 30 but finally had to throw away about 40% of the mangoes he brought in. He says the sweet words of diplomacy and a sweet fruit weren't enough. When it came to the nuts and bolts of getting the mangoes here, this deal left him bitter. He won't do it again. And his advice to Gwen and Tahir? Do your research. That's exactly what the two former librarians are doing in Pakistan. Tahir says he thinks Americans will like the fruit if they get a chance to try it. Maybe they'll even adopt the Pakistani tradition of mango parties. Put them in an ice box, and then you just talk or watch a cricket game, and then you just eat mangoes. Well, maybe watch football instead of cricket. For The World, I'm Odette Youssef. This is PRI. The World is brought to you by PRI with help from the Medtronic Foundation, helping inspire the next generation of healthcare innovators through Science Matters, a hands-on science guide for the entire family. Science Matters, available to classrooms and families at MedtronicFoundation.org. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. It may be March Madness here in the United States, but basketball fever is also invading arenas in Europe. The women's professional EuroLeague playoffs are taking place right now in Istanbul, Turkey, and there are a lot of American players on the court. Three of them play for Spartak, a top Russian team based in the Moscow region. Attracting top U.S. talent has been one key to Spartak's success. Another was the generosity of a flamboyant owner. He met with a violent death, but the team goes on, as the world's Laura Lynch reports. Usually, this is the anthem of the opponent. But for more than six months a year, three American women stand at attention on the court, casting their eyes up toward the Russian flag hanging from the rafters. For now, this is their anthem, their reality. Here they are at Saturday afternoon practice, dribbling, passing, shooting, rebounding. Top talents Candace Dupree, Simone Augustus, and Becky Hammond powering up and down the court. Off the court, the women are definitely out of their element. There's the weather, of course. This is Russia. And then there's the traffic. I personally would like to have my own car, but I would never drive here. 
Driving is crazy. But, but Candace Dupree says that problem is eased by the fact they each have a driver on call 24 hours a day. Call our driver when we need to go food shopping or go to the mall, movies. Keep them out until 5 o'clock in the morning. Yeah. <laughs> you do sometimes. Sometimes. <laughs> but really, why come all this way to a land where you can't speak the language, don't see your family for months at a time, and don't have many friends beyond teammates? Honestly, the money. <laughs> I mean, the money's great. Like These three women also play for American teams, but they all earn more, up to four times as much as they do during the WNBA season. On top of that, there are player bonuses. Women have been signing up to play in Russia and Europe for years, trying to augment their income. But the colorful, mysterious man who started this team in 2006 changed everything. The Sad Strains accompany a video released last fall to pay tribute to Shadtai von Kalmanovich. It's been just over two years since the team owner's Mercedes was riddled with bullets in what police called a contract killing. Von Kalmanovich had a past shaded with dark moments. Jailed in Israel for spying for the KGB, suspected of being involved in diamond smuggling in Africa. But in the Russia of the 1990s, von Kalmanovich bought businesses, staged concerts with stars like Michael Jackson, and cashed in big. And he didn't hesitate to share that wealth with the women on his team. Coach Pokey Chapman says it was much more than just paying big salaries. It was like Disney World in Moscow, I guess, you know. Uh, and the interesting thing about that is Shaptai left the basketball alone. He wanted to sit on the bench just to be a part. But he didn't know, didn't care less about it. He, he was more uh, excited about making sure that whoever's birthday it was, they got some long stem roses, some nice chocolates, or flying the girls to Dubai to get some diamonds, or, you know, making sure their families could come over. That was extremely important to him. You heard that right. He flew them to Dubai to get diamonds or sent them on shopping sprees in Paris. They lived in luxury and traveled in luxury. Von Kalmanovich poured millions into the team, knowing he would never turn a ruble in profit. So when he was murdered, there was an outpouring of grief. Team manager Steve Costales says to this day they set out a special courtside tribute at each game. There's a pack of sugars that he used to smoke, a lighter, and a little glass with dirt from his grave because he has to watch all of the games. He has to be with us in all the games. He may be there in spirit, but without von Kalmanovich's deep pockets, things aren't quite the same. Listen up. Listen up. Uh, I said this a couple of times before. It's Sunday, just a few minutes before game time, and Coach Chapman is giving the team some last-minute tips in the locker room. Then it's on to the court, where it looks and sounds like a high-class professional basketball game. The arena is state-of-the-art, with huge video screens and electronic scoreboards. And there's a troop of cheerleaders in skimpy costumes cheering on the sidelines. But a glance into the stands reveals another reality. Only a third of the seats are filled, even though everyone gets in for free. At courtside, watching closely, is von Kalmanovich's widow, Anna. 
A former player herself, she's trying to keep the team going. I try to keep on our philosophy of my husband. We have now small budget, not such a big money as it was before. But we do everything to keep this level of the team. Spartak has lost two top American players to teams who pay more. Still, Augustus, Hammond and Dupree are standouts on this team. Scoring, rebounding, playmaking, they do it all. Becky Hammond says all female players should be grateful to the team's late owner for the salaries they're earning now. I think they have really kind of laid the foundation of how this uh, organization runs things and really kind of changed the culture of the, all of women's basketball. Since he got involved, it wasn't just this team. Every Because now, for other teams to be competitive, they had to step up their game. So now we're getting paid a lot better just because of what he did years ago. Still, it's a hard slog for these women, strangers in a strange land. Between competing overseas and in the WNBA, they end up playing or practicing all year round. And still, the money is nothing compared to the NBA. A top male player there can make more than the entire women's league salaries combined. Simone Augustus says it's not always easy. You know, at some point, we might have kids. We might have a daughter that want to play ball one day. And I hope that she doesn't have to go through what we have to go through as far as coming overseas. Hopefully one day, you know, we can make enough money. Women can make enough money in the States and stay at home because it's hard. It really is hard to have to, you know, leave your family. Like um, For now, though, the Americans will travel where they have to go, where the owners are happy to pay top dollar for top U.S. talent. And here at Spartak, Shabtai von Kalmanovich's widow, Anna, will try her best to maintain the legacy of her husband on a smaller budget. I think target of his life was to make people happier, especially women. So, <laughs> so he loves women who work hard, you know, and he was ready every day to make them happy. They seem happy enough for now, playing to small crowds through the dark days of winter, playing to win. For The World, I'm Laura Lynch in Vidnoya, Russia. Head to our virtual courtside to see some women's hoops action in Russia. We've got a slideshow at theworld.org. I'm Marco Werman. Coming up on The World, Israel's Supreme Court wades into the volatile issue of unauthorized settlement outposts. One lawyer says it's time to get rid of them. The outposts are illegal, so follow the law, the internal law. The government of Israel should follow the law, and they don't. PRI's The World is made possible in part by Medtronic, searching for runners who benefit from medical technology to run in the Medtronic Twin Cities Marathon. Application and information available at medtronic.com slash globalheroes. I'm Marco Werman, and this is The World, a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH in Boston. We aired a story last week about a Liberian journalist who was forced into hiding. That's because she wrote an article about the practice of female genital cutting. In Liberia, it's done by traditional female leaders who operate a secret society. 
This week, those traditional leaders agreed to shut down the Bush schools where girls undergo female circumcision. And that means that the practice has been stopped across Liberia, at least temporarily. Bonnie Allen reports from the Capitol. A note here, Bonnie's story includes descriptions that some listeners may find disturbing. In the morning, the streets of Monrovia are lined with children heading to school in their crisply starched uniforms. The sound of Liberia's national anthem can be heard across the capital city. But in Liberia, girls start to disappear from the education system. Two out of three teenage girls, sometimes younger, are pulled out of school and sent to the Sandy Bush. It's a traditional training school run by a powerful and secretive women's society. In the Sandy, girls are taught how to take care of themselves and their future husbands. They're also initiated into the secret society by a brutal practice. It happened to Kula Borbo when she was 16. They will lay you down and sit here on your chest and tie your hand like this and tie your face that you will not see the instrument that it will use. The instrument is usually a razor or knife and it's used to cut off part or all of a girl's clitoris. group of women will be surrounding you. It will allow a pain. By talking about female genital cutting, often called mutilation, Borbo is breaking a serious taboo in Liberia. The country has two secret societies, the Sandy for the women and the Poro for the men, and they forbid anyone from revealing their secrets. The societies operate across two-thirds of the country, and they're so powerful that anyone who wants to succeed socially, economically, or politically must become a member or risk being ostracized. So, despite international pressure and a female president, the Liberian government has never taken a public position against female genital circumcision. Until now. So government is saying this needs to stop. I can't tell you it has stopped completely, but the process is on. That's Liberia's gender minister, Julia Duncan-Castle. She says the government has been talking privately to traditional leaders for some time. Then in December, it sent out a letter requesting that Sandy Bush activities stop. There has been statement put up by the Ministry of Internal Affairs asking all of our mothers, our aunts, our sisters to desist from such practices. The ministry says an outright ban wouldn't work. On the outskirts of Monrovia, a grey-haired woman watches as schoolgirls eagerly cram into the classroom alongside the boys. Mama Toma is one of the most powerful traditional leaders in Liberia. She's the head zoo for the Sandy Society. And she has embraced the idea of formal education for girls, which means less time in the bush. It will be time for school. Time for school will be time for school, she says. But small, small children, we can't force them into the bush. Mama Toma confirms she's shutting down the sandy bush for four years, but says she's doing it so that the male society can use the traditional land for its training. She refuses to talk about female genital circumcision, and she insists it's not permanent. We're not ready for people to say no more sandy. It will damage the country. However, this decision to shut down Sandy Bush schools, at least temporarily, means that female genital circumcision has been suspended in Liberia. The gender minister wants to move quickly to capitalize on this opportunity. 
So we are going to go from county to county now and ask them, look, if we want them to do this, what are we going to give them in place of that? Because for some of them, it's the livelihood. So while the stoppage is temporary, the government will work with traditional leaders in hopes of making it permanent. For The World, I'm Bonnie Allen, Monrovia, Liberia. Some of you might be familiar with a California-based shoe company called Tom's. It has a buy-one-give-one business model. That is, Tom's promises to give one pair of new shoes to a needy child somewhere for every pair purchased by consumers. The company says it's given away two million pairs of shoes this way. Tom's is the subject of an investigation by reporter Amy Costello. She was the world's Africa correspondent for many years. She's now anchoring a podcast called Tiny Spark, igniting debate about the business of doing good. Its latest installment is about Tom's and how the company works. The model is based on the idea of harnessing the power of consumers who want to do good with their purchases. So with the buy one, give one model, and in the case of Tom's Shoes, for instance, if you buy a pair of their shoes... They promise to give a pair to a child in need. And this model has been so successful with Tom's that it's inspired lots of other entrepreneurs to try similar business models. In the case of Tom's Shoes, it is a private for-profit company, so details are difficult to get. But if they have sold 2 million pairs of shoes at an average of $50 a pair, uh, they're a $100 million company at least. Now, listeners who know about Tom's Shoes may know about uh, Tom's Shoes founder, Blake McCoskey. Tell us a bit about him and his ideas. Blake has really been celebrated as uh, quite a successful entrepreneur in recent years since he launched Tom's Shoes. He's a 35-year-old. He is often hailed as being someone who, at, from a very young age, he's already started several successful uh, launches of startup companies, uh, Tom's obviously being his most successful. And about 10 years ago, he appeared as Mr. Tennessee in Fox Television's America's Sexiest Bachelor. He was then mm. in uh, The Amazing Race with his sister Paige. So I kind of portray a guy who's really always been after the media spotlight and is clearly really enjoying his time in the media spotlight now with Tom's shoes. So what did you find out about who these shoes are actually going to? The first place I started with was Tom's own website. And one thing that's readily apparent is that many children who are receiving Tom's shoes already have shoes of their own. You can see that in the photographs. So that raises the question for me is if there are lots of children in need, why are children getting their second pair of shoes from Tom's? And I think, you know, to a lot of people, that's fine. And I, and I agree. I think it's a wonderful thing if children can have one, more than one pair of shoes. That's not the issue for me. It's just that if they are going to be giving thousands and thousands of shoes to children who already have them, then I think their marketing message needs to be a little different because then you're not really reaching the world's neediest children. Now, you spoke with uh, Laura Fresky at New York University's Development Research Institute. Here are some of her worries. I'm concerned that Tom sort of creates the impression that there are no shoes to be purchased <laughs> in some of these communities, when in fact there are vibrant local economies in many of these places where they're giving shoes. It's important to acknowledge that in some cases the buy one, give one model practiced this way could be harmful to those local producers and sellers. Amy, you spent a lot of time looking at the people who actually give out Tom's shoes in the field. What did you find out about these giving partners? What I discovered after kind of hunting and pecking around Tom's own site was that they had partnered with a number of secular organizations over the years. 
But I immediately noticed the number of Christian evangelical organizations that Tom has partnered with. They've partnered with at least eight different evangelical organizations around the world to distribute their shoes. And what I found in some instances is that some of these evangelical partners are bringing the message of Jesus during shoe distributions, which is against Tom's policy. Tom says it's a non-political, non-religious organization. And that in some instances, children may be receiving shoes because they go to Christian schools. I found instances in Rwanda where missionaries from Arkansas came to distribute 6,000 pairs of Tom shoes and only distributed within one Christian evangelical diocese in northern Rwanda. They went to one school that was not in the diocese. So what this raises for me is the question of, are children who are in need but who are not attending Christian schools, who are not affiliated with Christian organizations, also getting shoes? And? And I don't know the answer to that because it's impossible to know where all two million shoes have gone. And I have repeatedly asked Toms for response to the questions that I raise in my piece. I've asked them for uh, interviews and uh, have been denied. So I would love some more information from Toms about their evangelical partners and if they are ever in violation of Toms' company policy about shoe distributions, what actions are being taken, if any. Amy, good to speak with you. Thanks a lot. Marco, thank you. For more on Amy Costello's investigation into Tom's, listen to her podcast, Tiny Spark. We have a link at theworld.org. We requested an interview with Tom's officials. They declined, but they did send a statement expressing their disappointment that Amy Costello's investigations did not include interviews with Tom's giving partners or supporters. It also noted that Tom's is a secular company. The full statement is also at theworld.org. Israel's Supreme Court weighed in on a touchy subject this week. In a unanimous decision, the judges rejected a government plan to postpone the evacuation of an unauthorized Jewish settlement in the West Bank. In other words, those settlers will now have to leave. The decision could set a precedent for other so-called illegal settlement outposts. The world's Middle East correspondent Matthew Bell visited one of those outposts in the West Bank. Avner Goldschmidt gives me a tour of the rocky hilltop outpost of Amona, and somehow he manages to keep his yarmulke from being snatched away by the wind. He repeatedly grabs it off his buzz-cut head just in the nick of time. Amona is one of the largest of about a hundred settlement outposts. Some 200 people live here. Under Israeli law, there's a difference between the settlements and the outposts. The outposts were established illegally without government authorization. But despite a string of lawsuits, court rulings, and promises by the Israeli government to the contrary, the outposts have endured since the mid-1990s. Goldschmidt grew up in what he calls Samaria, that's the biblical name for the northern West Bank. Like other Israeli settlers, Goldschmidt doesn't use the term West Bank. Another word he avoids is outpost. Amona is a Jewish community, he says, founded in 1996. People here raise sheep, grow grapes, and make wine. One day, he hopes, Amona will be a more developed area, just like the much larger Israeli settlement of Ofra down the hill from here. But at Goldschmidt's feet... 
there's a reminder of how that dream could be deferred. He's standing on a heap of broken tiles and construction debris that used to be a house. In 2006, 7,000 Israeli security forces were sent to demolish nine newly built homes here in Amona. Goldschmidt was in the crowd that clashed with police that day. No one was killed, but it was a violent scene with serious injuries that shocked many Israelis. Goldschmidt says he's confident who will win in the long run. These homes will be rebuilt, he believes, with the help of God. Just look at all the other thriving settlements in the area, he says. But there's a deadline hanging over Amona. The Israeli government has committed to evacuating the outpost by December 31st. Several other outposts face similar deadlines. A few miles down the road is the 10-year-old outpost of Migron. Lawmakers signed a deal with the residents there to build them new homes if they agreed to relocate in three and a half years. But the Supreme Court this week said no. The judges dismissed that plan as a stalling tactic, and they set a new evacuation deadline for August 1st. There are fears that forced evacuations could mean more violence. But Revital Halberstead, sitting in the living room of her home in Amona, with her nine-month-old daughter on her lap, says she and her husband are realistic. We build here our house, and we build here a lovely community, and uh, it's very, very hard to leave everything and to move everything. We, we will fight to, or we, we will do the best that we can that uh, we will stay here. But uh, if we will need to uh, be more flexible to change a little bit our reality, we will do it, I think. That's why, Halberstead says, her family built a house without a permanent foundation. If necessary, it can be moved. And it should be moved, says former state prosecutor Talia Sasson. In 2005, Sasson was appointed by then-Prime Minister Ariel Sharon to write a report on Israel's settlement outposts. Sasson says this is a straightforward issue. The outposts are illegal, so follow the law, the internal law. The government of Israel should follow the law, and they don't. Right-wing lawmakers who support Jewish settlements in the West Bank say they want to retroactively legalize the outposts. This would prevent any future violence between security forces and settlers, they say. But Sasson believes such a law would be unconstitutional and she doubts it's going to happen anyway. If the Supreme Court says outposts were built illegally on Palestinian lands, she says, the government needs to follow the court orders to evacuate them. For The World, I'm Matthew Bell in Jerusalem. Zoom in on the Black Sea for today's GeoQuiz. The Black Sea is right in between Eastern Europe and Western Asia. There are dozens of popular seaside towns along the Black Sea, places like Neptune, Romania, Ordu, Turkey, and Sochi, Russia. The one we're looking for is in the Republic of Georgia. It's the capital of the Georgian region of Adjara. The mayor there hopes to introduce more tourists to local Georgian traditions, especially one called cha-cha. That's not to be confused with gyrating one's hips, as in the cha-cha-cha. We're talking about cha-cha, a traditional Georgian drink. Do enough shots, you may want to try the cha-cha-cha. We're going to hear exactly what this Georgian mayor has in mind in a minute. That's just enough time for you to come up with the name of the city by the Black Sea.
This is PRI. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. The tourism season along the Black Sea coast of Georgia is just around the corner. The city we asked you about in today's GeoQuiz is one popular destination, and this summer it might get even more popular. Get this. The mayor in the city has something special planned this summer. The locals call it a cha-cha tower. We're going to have to turn to Georgian reporter Georgi Lomsadze for an explanation. First of all, tell us about this cha-cha tower, because when I heard about it, I couldn't quite believe it. Well, uh, cha-cha is a Georgian hard drink, which soon, actually this summer, is going to flow from the tower, which they call cha-cha tower, in the city of Batumi on the Black Sea coast. It's going to be a fountain at the bottom of this tower, and uh, once in a week, Chacha, uh, the hard drink, is going to flow from there for free. Okay, so this tower is in the middle of Batumi. Batumi is the answer to our geo-quiz, by the way. And this hard liquor is going to flow like water from this fountain instead of water. That's pretty wild. What does chacha actually taste like? Chacha is made from grape skins, and it has a very strong grape flavor. It's a very strong drink. It depends. Some people make it very strong. It sometimes is described as a brandy, as a grape brandy. Some people call it just moonshine. Mm. Every time people <laughs> people speak about cha-cha, it brings like smile to people's faces <laughs> because they know that it's, it's a killer. It's probably going to attract lots of cha-cha lovers because this drink is popular is not only in Georgia, but in places that, uh, where people are familiar with this country. I mean, I know cha-cha is kind of the national drink of Georgia, but... Why do this? Why open up a fountain? Well, you can attract only so many people with water, <laughs> and probably you can attract much larger crowd with cha-cha, especially if it's going to flow from a fountain. Like, I myself plan to go there and, and try it and see how it works. Maybe write a story about it if I'm sober enough. Yeah, right, if you're uh, sober enough. So basically, this city um, is trying to come up with many uh, ways to attract larger crowds of tourists from different places. And they probably knew that this kind of news is going to catch eyes around the world. So I guess that's the idea. Yeah, well, it worked, didn't it? But Tumi has the potential for being one drunk town at the end of the summer. Probably, yes. And I don't know, (laughs) is that a good thing or a bad thing? Probably not a bad thing for tourism. Some uh, some people, not only in Batumi, but in Georgia, have been critical because they think that places like Batumi have better things to offer, like history and culture. <laughs> I think it's probably going to be very popular with the Russian visitors. Yeah, they get I mean, too- they've had appreciation of Chacha for quite some time now. You, you think so it- if that's not going to attract Russian tourists, nothing will. <laughs> Maybe next year we will have a vodka tower, too, or beer... <laughs> or something like that. I don't know. Like, the sky's the limit. Georgian reporter Georgi Lomsadze. Georgi, thanks a lot. Thanks for having me. Now, traditional Persian music isn't a sound you instantly associate with Los Angeles, but Iranian-born Khosro Ansari is a prolific singer of traditional Persian music, and like many Iranians in exile, he lives in L.A. Ansari has lent his voice to numerous collaborations. The latest is an album called Mehrab, which we'll talk about in a moment. Ansari's name may not be familiar to you, but perhaps you've heard his work already in the soundtracks of television shows like ER or the one for the movie Spy Game. Oh, 
Khosro Ansari joins us from Los Angeles, where uh, you've lived for 18 years now, Khosro, and where a lot of Iranians live. Tell us, has Hollywood been good to you, or is it kind of a mixed bag? It's been good to me, you know. It's just uh, I haven't been very active, but the word of mouth, uh, especially Spy Game, was very successful for me. Now, the style of music you're known for is called Radif. Am I, am I pronouncing that right, Radif? Correct. It's kind of music of heartache and longing. What, what in particular uh, do you connect with in Radif? What I'm connecting with is uh, actually it's just my personal experience in life. And I think for everybody is different because, first of all, you need to learn the Radif and the Persian music. After that, you got to come up with your own style of singing. Well, before going on, Khosro, let's listen to a song from the CD Merab, uh, Loga Ramin Torkin CD that, that you perform on. This song is called The Burning Heart. Khosro Ansari, would you describe this song, uh, The Burning Heart, as uh, an example of Radif? Well, for my singing, like uh, Loga's uh, music, it's kind of, uh, you might call it fusion, but um, I try to connect to that, and uh, absolutely whatever I, I sing and I sang in that CD, it comes from the Radif. I mean, the music is a bit deceptive because this is classical Persian music. At the same time, we're also hearing these beats, and the sound doesn't necessarily imply classical music. For those of us who hear uh, an ancient music here, how are you pushing the boundaries of Persian classical music? Well, as we, we mentioned at the beginning of the interview, singing in soundtrack movies such as Spy Game and the other ones, helped me a lot. And I started uh, trying to collaborate with other musicians, especially living in Los Angeles. I'm, I'm very grateful to be here, and I think that gave me this opportunity. I'm always intrigued, too, when I speak with uh, Iranian musicians living in the U.S., whether you feel uh, that your music is being heard in Iran. Well, I had a CD about five years ago, and uh, it was released in Iran, and uh, f- that's the only CD I have actually in Iran. But um, I'm sure they've heard my singing and my music, uh, you know, through internet. You served two consecutive years in the Iranian army during the Iran-Iraq War in the 1980s. Now Iran is again rattling sabers with the U.S., with Israel and the West over its nuclear program. Um, as an Iranian living in Los Angeles, as an Iranian who fought for your country. What is your view on what's going on right now? Well, I'm not a political man, actually, but uh, I'm I'm hoping, especially right now, we are in the New Year, Persian New Year. I just want to say Happy New Year to all your uh, Farsi-speaking listeners, especially Iranian. And Happy and New wish- Year to you, too. <laughs> Thank you, and wishing them a healthy, happy, and a peaceful year. So I'm hoping, you know, we're, go- we're going to have a peaceful year. That's Iranian-born singer Khosro Ansari. His vocals feature in Merab, a new CD by fellow Iranian musician Loga Ramin Tarkian. 
You can watch a video of the two of them at theworld.org. From the Nan and Bill Harris Studios at WGBH in Boston, I'm Marco Werman. We're back tomorrow. The World is a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston, supported in part by the National Endowment for the Arts, which believes that a great nation deserves great art. The Luce Foundation's Henry R. Luce Initiative on Religion and International Affairs, and by the WGBH Fund for Environmental Reporting, whose donors include the Grantham Foundation for the Protection of the Environment, supporting a cooperative approach to solving our critical environmental problems while we still can. PRI Public Radio International.